book, Counterfeit Gods, he recounts how a string of tragic suicides followed the global economic crisis of 2008. The acting chief officer, financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation of the US, hanged himself in the basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading US real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head while behind his red Jaguar wheel. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in the Bernard Madoff Ponzi scheme, he slit his wrists and died in his office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London, when a Bear Stearns executive uh, learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase. He just uh, basically threw himself off the 29th floor. And Keller comments on the difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is a pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing uh, one good thing among others, so that if you experience a career reversal or if you find uh, some other tragedy, you, there's, there's some other comfort you can turn to, maybe your family, maybe, maybe something else to get you through. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing the ultimate thing. And when you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or your hope, there are no alternative sources to turn to. It just breaks your spirit. And so please open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, page 734 in the church Bibles. You see, our Bible readings today from chapters 46 and 47 address the topic of idolatry. Isaiah was writing to uh, people who were experiencing exile in Babylon around 600 BC, 600 years before Christ came. Chapter 46 tells us of the emptiness of the idols of Babylon. And chapter 47 prophesies about the collapse of Babylon and its empire. And the point is simply this. This will inevitably be the case. The culture that rests on idols will ultimately collapse. The life that looks to idols is one that wearies, disappoints, and leads to despair. Now, this might seem a bit remote to us today. Uh, the talk of, of idols, it conjures up primitive people bowing down to statues. But from ancient times right up to today, every city, every culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether that's the shopping mall or office towers or spas or gyms or studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of, of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the, the gods of beauty and power and money and achievement, but the same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. As Keller puts it this way, we may not kneel to a statue of Aphrodite, but yet many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not burn incest to Artemis, 
But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. It's extraordinary, isn't it, in the Olympics, even with all the vetting, some people have been sent home for trying to rig the drug tests. Why is it that people try and cheat to win medals? What is the idolatry that drives that? (coughs) Over and over again, I think since 2008, the damaging culture of greed has been kind of exposed, and we're still, banks are still paying off loans and debts and fines for all the mis-selling and misuse uh, that has taken place. The Apostle Paul warns in uh, the book of Colossians, greed is idolatry. All those tragic suicides in 2008 show the despair that comes at the failure of idols. And so we shouldn't write off these chapters of chapters 46 and 47 as something historical and remote from us. God wants us to listen to him. Repeatedly, he says, you listen to me. He wants us to listen to him to see the utter emptiness and the foolishness of living for idols and the inevitable collapse of the culture that is based on them. So we're going to look at these two chapters, mainly focusing on chapter 46, the idols of Babylon, and then 47, the collapse of Babylon. But let's look at chapter 46 first. And what you see here is the failure of the false gods versus the success of the true God. See, look at verse 5. God invites his people to make a comparison. With whom will you compare me or count my equal? God invites a comparison. The gods and idols of Babylon versus the true God of Israel. And there's two main sort of ideas here that, that, to notice that The question, who does the carrying and who does the saving? Verse 1 introduces us to the gods of Babylon. Look at Bel, verse 1, otherwise known as Marduk, who was the patron god of Babylon, supposedly the king of the gods of the Babylonian culture. And Nebo uh, was the son of Bel Marduk, who was a patron of wisdom and the art of writing. His function was to write on, and I, I, I quote, the tables of destiny. That sounds fantastic, doesn't it? He carries the tables of destiny. And uh, he, 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 the job was that he was decreeing uh, what was going to happen from the gods each year. And so there was this New Year festival, that kind of hogmany festival built up to this big moment where the idols of Bel and Nebo were paraded around <coughs> Babylon. And uh, they were seen as the source of of success for the growing empire of Babylon and its uh, famed beautiful city, its hanging gardens and the like. But Isaiah paints a very different picture inspired by God of this spectacle. Look at verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo is stooping. These idols are so heavy that you just feel sorry for these poor beasts of burden that have to carry them around. A great wearying burden as they're being carried off into captivity. Now, there would have been decades and decades in the 6th century BC as Babylon looked mighty and powerful that this New Year procession would have looked very impressive. 
uh, you would have seen the huge military success of Babylon, the way the empire spread, the way that they took over other nations and their, and their gods, the way that the culture was expanding and growing and carrying all before it, it must have looked utterly unstoppable. And the people of Israel had, had been mopped up by Babylon, just another conquered nation, their God apparently impotent against the gods of Babylon. And uh, as they were exiles in the city of Babylon, watching the New Year thing as Bel and Ebo get paraded around the city, well... They must have felt that their worship of the Lord God Almighty was, must have looked very foolish to those who looked on. But God wanted them to look through the mirage to see the reality. And here's the principle. Whoever does the making does the carrying. It's quite a simple principle. Uh, look at verse 6. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a God. And they bow down and worship it. What a spectacle, bowing down and worshiping something you created. It came out of your wealth, out of your pocket. And then guess what? You're the one who has to carry it. Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. It looks obvious to us now, doesn't it? How empty was all this devotion? Uh, there are no temples to Bel and Nebo that I know about in Edinburgh. Do you know any? I had to explain to you who they were, these gods. Um, the Babylonian Empire is dust. But here's the folly of all false gods and the idols we create. If a god has to be carried, how can it carry you? If a god can't help itself, how can it help you? If a god needs your strength, how can it strengthen you? It's a wearying business, sacrificing and sustaining your idols, having to carry it on your shoulders. And in the day of trouble... When all your resources and strength are used up, it doesn't matter how much time you devoted to your idol. When you cry out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save. And that is the day of total despair. And God wanted his people to listen and remember. The God who'd revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob wanted to speak to their descendants. Verse 3, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob. All the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. It was God who created them as a nation. God who made those promises to Abraham that from his descendants would come a nation that God would bless and, and bring into relationship with him. God had made them and God would carry them. He would sustain them as a people. He'd made them and he would carry them all the way. And this is a wonderful truth. But they were struggling to believe it. You see here in chapter 46, God addresses them as as rebels. 
And I think we often struggle to believe and trust God when things are dark. These words were written to them in their darkest point where they looked vanquished foes, exiles, their country trashed and ruined. They looked utter failures. And when life is like that, it is very hard for us to believe and trust God. When it appears like we're stuck and there is no end in sight, well, God wants to speak to us. And he urges them to remember their history, the ways that God had kept his word to them. Verse 8, remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And so God, in his grace, says to grumbling people, watch me. Just as I've done in the past, where I've promised what would happen and will happen, I'm going to promise to you something else that will happen. And as you see it getting fulfilled, you'll know that, that I'm the God who made you and will carry you and sustain you. And there in verse 11 is the promise that we looked at last week. That God would summon this bird of prey, the Medo-Persian king, Cyrus, who would come and sweep away the Babylonian empire that had captured them. And that would lead to the, uh, a new uh, government and a new rule that would release them from exile and send them back to Israel to rebuild. God promises through Isaiah Hundreds of years before even the Babylonian Empire would come to power, that it would be swept away. And God is saying through Isaiah, in the darkest point, remember, I'm the God who tells you what will happen, and it happens. I'm the God who carries you. And we know from history that's exactly what took place. Uh, that uh, the Medo-Persian uh, king Cyrus rose up, and at record speed, swamped the empire of Babylon and taking Babylon quite easily. The idols cannot answer your prayers. You cry out to them, no response. God is the one who succeeds in all that he purposes to happen. He says it's going to happen, and it happens. And here in chapter 46 is amazing grace and amazing determination by the only God. We're seeing through these chapters that God keeps promises he's going to act for them. And yet we've got this counterpoint that his people are still very stubborn and rebellious. And here's our encouragement and hope that God is more stubborn to determine and fulfill his purposes of salvation than his people are happy to receive it. And in that, there is great comfort. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Well, I want to suggest to you this is a very joyful truth to remember. The one who makes <coughs> does the carrying and does the saving. See, God's promises to Abraham were not merely for the nation of Israel. God promised Abraham right at the beginning that through him, blessing would come to all the nations. 
And here's the storyline of the Bible leading to the coming of Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah King, the one through whom blessing can come to the world. His death on the cross, his resurrection, achieving the true salvation that is being promised here in Isaiah. The good news about Jesus Christ is that all who trust him receive the eternal salvation of God. And God is committed to taking stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious people and transforming them to display his splendor. This is such a glorious thing. God has determined that he will do it, and he is doing it. I will grant salvation to Zion, it says, my splendor to Israel. And I, say, I think these verses are a wonderful promise to the Christian church, the community of those who build their lives on Jesus. While at times the church can look foolish and beleaguered, particularly at this time of history uh, in Britain, and it can pass through very difficult days. There's intense persecution and opposition in places like Egypt and Syria and other places. And yet God has a future that is splendid and full of glory for Christ's church. Because the one who made us, who bought us with his own blood, uh, is the one who carries and sustains As Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Paul can confidently affirm to the church in Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that fantastic? Do you know what? There is also in our own lives, at times, a restless worrying and anxiety that besets us. Why is that? Well, sometimes it is because we take good things and make them ultimate God things, God substitutes in our lives. Because when our lives and our identity are wrapped up in our idols of our own creation, the anxiety and stress comes because deep down we know we're only relying on our limited resources. And so here's a wonderful invitation from Jesus to each one of us personally. Idolatry is not merely a problem for people out there. It's a problem that keeps pushing in even on God's people. That's why this chapter is here. Are we anxious and troubled today because we've worked really hard at sustaining our idols? And an anxiety that's not going to keep us because we're doing all the lifting. Well, listen to what Jesus says. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When our lives are centered on Jesus Christ, then even though at times we get anxious, what peace we can know if we believe this promise of God. If we recall these verses, he has upheld us, since our birth. He's carried us since we were born. And even to our old age and gray hairs, God is the one who sustains us. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, this week I held little Reuben Prime in my hands, a baby less than a month old, and I went to visit one of our older saints who's 94 years old. From the moment of our birth, even into our old age and gray hairs, this is the God who made us and will sustain us. And so we can rest 
in on him. Cast your burdens upon the Lord. That's what he invites us to do. And that's our confidence, really, on a Sunday where we can thank God for these little children. We don't know what lives they're going to have, uh, the, the difficulties and struggles that they may face, but we know if their lives are centered on Christ, he will keep them, he will sustain them, he will uphold them. And that is what we ought to remember and fix in our minds, verse 8. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart. In those anxious times, remember who is really upholding you. Do you know what? There are serious consequences of trying to build our lives and our society on idol worship. To reject the only God and instead build our lives and society on something else in the place of God, well, it puts us in profound opposition to God and it puts us beyond salvation. And let me quickly show you that from chapter 47 that speaks of the collapse of Babylon, which is inevitable when it's built on idols that cannot save. Now note that these words are not written to one person. The virgin daughter of Babylon is a reference to the whole city. And by the time you get to the last book of of the Bible, Babylon is is the name given to a world culture that lives to worship things other than God, that lives for its idols, and which God declares ultimately will be judged and thrown down. Babylon is the world that is opposed to God, that lives apart from God, that sets its own values and says, I don't want any interest in what God has to say, what the Bible has to say. And the world can, that, that rejects God can look so successful for a period of time. It can look so full of ease and pleasure, trendy, current, relevant, wise. And yet it's building its life on sinking sand. It's forgotten the God who makes all things. And there's a day when the true and living God will assert his sovereignty over all creation. So verses 1 to 3 tell us of the certainty of judgment. Babylon is pictured as this sort of dainty princess uh, who's only known luxury and ease. But a day would come when she would be ordered to sit down in the dust. Instead, she's going to be like a slave, grinding out the grain, working bare-legged in the fields, her reputation shattered. A day when no one would see her as glorious. Now, why would this happen? Well, uh, verse 6 tells us, I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hands. So the reason that, that Judah and Israel were trashed is that God actually allowed the Babylonians to come. He gave them into their hands. And yet this is what God says, verse 6, And yet you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. God had allowed Babylon to take Judah and Jerusalem, and yet the terrible cruelty that they displayed appalled God. No mercy was shown, not even to the aged. And a lack of mercy and care for the vulnerable is one of the marks of an idolatrous culture. As is a culture that is so self-confident in its superiority that it thinks it will last forever. Verse 7, you said, I am forever the eternal queen. The proud arrogance that assumes luxury is right and that lives with a false sense of security. Look at verse 8. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I'll never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. 
It's also marked by an ethical relativity that thinks it can just make up its own rules of what is right or wrong. Look at verse 10. You've trusted in your wickedness and you've said, no one sees me. I can do what I want. No one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Do you notice how that language is in direct confrontation with God? God says, I am God and there is no other. The, the, Babylon says, I am and there is none beside me. When the state starts believing that it is God, when the state deifies itself, then there is no end to the possibilities of evil that can take place. Just think about Nazi Germany and its plans for the Third Reich or even North Korea today, which deifies its leaders. But here's the warning. God is opposed to such merciless, arrogant, idolatrous cultures. Verse 11. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Despite all the confidence in their religion, their science and, and their magic and their astrology, none of it will save them from the bushfire of God's judgment sweeping over their culture, burning them up. And verse 15 is chilling. There is not one that can save you. See, when your culture is in rebellion against God and rejecting God's right to be God, you're rejecting the only one who can save. The Bible warns us that to live in rebellion against God and to live for our idols is, is foolish. It's wearying, and at the end of the day, it is eternally disastrous. I wonder, what is the ultimate in your life? To live for money, for success, for fame, for romantic relationship, for academic recognition, the Bible would warn you today, that will tragically disappoint and it will lead to eternal despair. Such idols will fail us and damn us before the living God. And right down through history, there have been these tremors of the final day of judgment that will one day come and shake the whole world and all our lives. As empires have come and gone, we get a foretaste of the day when all the pride and all the glory of a Babylonian world will be reduced to dust and ashes, when all idols will be shown to be utterly useless. So in all seriousness today, can I ask you, which city are you living in? Have you come to find, as it says at the end of chapter 46, have you come to find salvation in Zion by trusting Jesus Christ? Or are you still living in Babylon? Living for your idols? And can I ask you today, would you please come? Would you listen to God? Would you listen to his word today? And flee from Babylon. Flee from those idols. And rest in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Will you join me in prayer?